Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. A new Irish Times Ipsos poll shows declines in support for both Fine Gael and Sinn Féin. We discuss, things get heated in the doyle as the ECB rises interest rates for the eighth time since last July. And you sit there and say to them, hold on until October and we might do something at that stage. It's not acceptable. This is out of control and we need to intervene now. Plus, a very bad day for Bojo. A report by the Privileges Committee finds that Boris Johnson dis- deliberately misled Parliament over Partygate. We ask if there is any way back for the former British PIM. Do join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. For my first panel tonight, I'm joined by Fine Gael TD, Emer Higgins, Rose Conway-Walsh TD for Sinn Féin, Executive Editor at the Daily Mail Group, John Lee, and columnist and former Chief Executive of Bernardo's Fergus Finlay. You're all very welcome to the programme. Up first, we're going to be dissecting the latest Ipsos poll results, which show a decline in support by 4% for both Fine Gael and Sinn Féin and a sharp fall of 6% in the Taoiseach, Leo Radker's own personal ratings. And it's to that I'm going to go to first John Lee because Leo Radker was asked about this when he was at the opening of a new road in Mayo today. And as politicians often do when they're asked about polls, they dismiss them. It's just one poll, polls come and go, nothing to worry about here. Behind the scenes, though, is that the case? Well, there appeared to be worry on the Taoiseach's behalf um, last night before the poll was out, whether he was tipped off. I wasn't to the contents of it, but he took uh, took action. There was, a, there was a reaction, I know, in the leadership um, of the party to a series of articles in newspapers at the weekend, which were raising questions uh, about his leadership style and the performance of the party. This, this poll only goes on to reinforce those doubts. Um, so will and, he be concerned by this? Do you think? Well, certainly, the, the, there. Are, the, if 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 a T-shirt goes into his um, parliamentary party last night um, and says some of the things he did last night, that means he's aware of of some of the things that are being said about him. Now, there is this this narrative since he came back as as T-shirt that people are surprised at the lack of focus, um, the lack of strategy. The, there seems to be a, a reactive um, type of policy making that any policy that will, this is Fine Gael, any policy that will gain a headline seems to be what they'll jump on. There was, a, um, there was a, an op-ed a few weeks ago from three junior ministers citing um, uh, tax uh, wishes on their part in, in, a, in, a, in, in the coming budget, which was kind of ironic since um, there's now a Fine Fall finance minister, Fine Gael, have had that office for the last 
uh, 12 years and have failed to enact those um, enact those policies. Then uh, which last night, actually is interesting when you look at the poll, which says that it's sub 20, which was always a big, big number for them. If the poll goes before t- below 20, that's that's seats, that's reliable seats potentially lost. But where the voters came from was middle class voters. Well, Finnegale middle class voters moving away. The That's C1 what and C2 areas are what those tax cuts they claim or would be aimed at um, have fallen. Those figures have fallen. Interestingly, Fianna Fáil have, have almost caught up in Fine Gael in Dublin as well, which was another stronghold they felt against Fianna Fáil. And very worryingly, uh, some of that support seems to have gone to Fianna Fáil rather than... Um, rather than Sinn Féin as it did a year ago. They were 18% a year ago. This is only twice in the last millennium they've hit that figure. But also the Taoiseach um, seemed to take on those critics in the party last night. He did something very, that was seen as a bit odd, that he, he referred to his diary and how packed it is. Now, that would appear that was interpreted by his party colleagues as being a reaction to some of the um, claims in the media and elsewhere that he has appeared to be less than energised in the job. I, I, I'm, I cannot remember an occasion when a Taoiseach went into his parliamentary party and read out his diary. You know, we're all busy. It's whether that busyness is effective or not, and it's deemed not to be. And there are other criticisms, lastly. You know, there have been a number of... There's a lot of noise around the Taoiseach, and this is, this is factual, um, that's concerning his, that are concerning his colleagues. Additional mistakes there appear to be. There was an issue, for instance, with his partner tweeting at the coronation of the king. So, so it all, it all sort of looks, I suppose, as somebody whose eyes are not solely on the job the way they were in the past. Well, That's what it seems well to he suggest. seemed keen last night to, to, to let people know that he was. And I don't doubt he, he's doing his best, but his best is not is not showing up as effective in the polling at the moment. Yeah. And it's not showing up as, 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 as effective in boosting the morale of his party. Yeah, Imer, look, as I said, politicians dismiss these polls, but... I think since 1994, on two occasions, has Fine Gael had worse numbers than this. So you can't just dismiss this as a one-off and nothing to be worried about. Polls come and go, can you? Well, polls do come and go. But ultimately, of course, I'd like to be higher in the polls. I'd love for my party to be higher in the polls. Absolutely. Um, What we got last night, and I suppose the difference between me and, and John, is that I sat in that parliamentary party room last night and I heard the Taoiseach's absolute and utter commitment to his job, his determination, to lead Fine Gael into the next election and to uplift us in those polls. Um, I have absolute so what faith do you, in, Leo, in Leo as our leader. So what, what do you in, put the drop in numbers down to? Why has he gone from 43 down to 37%? Well, listen, we don't know. But what we need to do is get under the hood of that and make sure that we continue to deliver as a government. And that's what we are doing. And we need to double down and make sure that we're doing that and that people know that we're doing that. And the budget is a real opportunity for us to do that. And um, there were comments there in relation to our position on tax. I don't think it comes as a surprise to anybody that Fine Gael is a low tax party. That is something we would always advocate for. Obviously, we had a couple of years... I think a lot of co- people paying uh, the higher rate of income taxes, the low rate of income taxes this country would wonder about that. And that's what that. we need to reduce. And that's what we're getting criticised for, for saying that we need to reduce it. But that is the bottom line. We is want the to entire put more money back in people's pockets. Behind Leo Varadkar at the middle, at the moment? Yes, my understanding is there is. There was no dissent at that parliamentary party meeting last night. Everybody I speak to is 100% behind Leo. But somebody is leaking. Somebody is briefing against him. So it would seem, but nobody has gone on the record and said that. OK, but we do know that um, Charlie Flanagan did say last night he did support Leo Radker. He wants to see him lead the party into the next general election. But he said there is a drift 
between ministers and backbenchers. That's what he said last night. I, as a backbencher, and I'm a new TD, I'm only in the, I'm only in the parliamentary party three years, I don't feel adrift. All of my ministers who are very capable, very committed to their jobs and very busy at their jobs are absolutely approachable. And um, they hear me, they hear my ideas. I put forward ideas only last night to Leo Varadkar and to Pascal Donoghue in relation to the budget. That's my role is to represent my communities of Luke and Clondalkin and the four districts in Palmerston. I'm doing All that, right. lots of others But you're too. still a believer. Uh, Fergus, <laughs> would you have expected there to be a bounce in the polls for Fine Gael when Leo Varadkar came back into this office in December? I'm not sure that I would. Um, I, I, I don't think Leo Bradford was ever better than when he was caretaker Taoiseach um, at the very start of the pandemic. And I have a hunch, could be completely wrong about this, that he's a man who needs a crisis, who thrives in a crisis, and who probably is finding things a little bit dull at the moment. I suspect from that perspective, um, this opinion poll is probably the kick in the behind that he might need. And yet I, people I would know. say, look at housing. That is a crisis. But, no, no, that, but that's a different kind of thing. That's because not, it's an ongoing... That's, a, that's a, a different kind of thing. And one of the failures of this government has been that housing has been treated as a departmental crisis. It should be Leo's personal crisis, morning, noon and night. But it's not, it's not being treated that way. Do you it's feel that the party is, is drifting, that the party is going through a bit of an I, identity I, I crisis? I think there's a bit of that going on. Um, I mean, I, I don't pay any attention at all to all this talk of heave and discontent. And I think that's a question of heat, sunstroke, sunlight. Um, at the start of every summer, you expect something like this to emerge into the a political maelstrom, and I think that's... So you don't uh, think there's one person, we won't name who it is, waiting in the wings, well, there might well be, briefing against there might be the Iraq hoping there might to be take a person the job. to stir it up. But if you tell me that Simon Harris is out there plotting to undermine Leo Varadkar, I think that's delusional, to be honest. I yeah. don't think and there's you, the remotest possibility of that going on. And you don't think this is the beginning of the end for Leo either, do you? Every time a politician reaches the top job, it is the beginning of the end. All political careers end ultimately in failure, but he's a long way from the end. He will lead Fine Gael into the next election. I've no idea how they will do in the next election, but the end won't come until well after that. All right, Rose Conway-Walsh, um, Sinn Féin were down four in this poll, still polling really well, up at 31, but the worst poll for Sinn Féin in a long time. What are you putting that down to? I suppose what you always look at is the trend in the polls, Kira. So that is one single single poll. Um, you know, so in, in that sense, I don't think... You so you're not worried a, about the polls uh, either? Nobody's ever no, worried when the polls uh, are no, going the wrong no. way? In all honesty, Kira, the margin of error was 2.8%. That's 4%. That's uh, 4 point. Uh, but if you look at the trends, you see Sinn Féin have been... Um, 30% and more than 30% consistently since 2020. Now, what's very clear is that there's a real appetite for change still there and the people want change. But to some of the, I suppose, the, the, the votes, particularly in 2020, that helped uh, Sinn Féin, which um, the position that it did, was that youth vote. And we saw in that poll a lot of that youth vote moving mm. across to the Social Democrats. Does that not concern you? Because perhaps yeah. they are stronger in areas like climate change, where Sinn Féin might be seen as weaker. That's an issue that's very okay. important to well, you see, when you, when you look at the, the polls and you look at the 18 to 24-year-olds, you see 50, you see Sinn Féin have nearly 50% of that category of people. So that kind of 
belies that as well, particularly with younger voters, Sinn Féin uh, are attractive. People see, people see the crisis, and I know that there isn't a crisis, there's an absolute crisis. So you don't see the SOC Dems as a threat at all to that youth not, not, not at all, no. I think people, and I really value this, that people see change in being delivered by Sinn Féin, and we will consistently work to make sure that that they, continues and that that happens. So, uh, what was clear, I suppose, from looking at those polls, there's no clear majority government out there. Every, somebody's going to have to deal, uh, deal with somebody else. Are the SOC Dems a potential coalition partner for you? Well, it's clear the people want change and we want to lead the next government and hopefully the people will um, you know, support us to be able to do that. People know that they've had 100 years of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, so they're very clear on what Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael can deliver. Mm. And what they're saying is, we know that give you another four years, things aren't going to change. And the crisis worsens. It worsens at health, it worsens in housing, and it worsens, it worsens in the cost of living. OK, we saw today, um, Fergus, we saw Pierce Doherty standing up uh, talking about this eighth interest rate rise, another quarter of a percent, and the pressure, that the real pressure that it, that is putting on people, particularly those with um, tracker mortgages. Is that going to put, do you think, and this poll and the questions about leadership, is that going to put a, a pressure on Leo Radcliffe come budget to deliver a budget, perhaps, that Fine Gael would say they didn't want to do? It's certainly going to put a pressure on the government to deliver a budget that protects people around housing. Um, I, I, I have met nobody, absolutely nobody, who thinks that four or 500 extra in income tax cuts is going to solve anybody's problem. But I have met people who are terrified of mortgage rate increases. I've met people, I've met women, who are on the brink of losing their homes because of uh, eviction. Women who never would have dreamt in their entire lives that the word eviction would ever happen to them. Mm. But I, I know people who are terrified of that. I know young people who haven't a snowball's chance in hell of ever owning their own home as things stand at the moment. I, I work in communities where that have been waiting for regeneration for 20 years, and it's 10 or 15 years away still. And everyone you meet says, this is the stuff that government should be concentrating on, on a whole of government basis. I, I think this is the reason why the next government cannot be formed, in my opinion. And I'm not a member of Sinn Féin, I'm not a supporter of Sinn Féin, but I don't believe the next gov no government can be formed after the next election. That doesn't involve Sinn Féin. Um, it, it has to be put up or shut up time in respect of people who, who regard housing as the first priority. Yeah. I regard housing as the first priority, and I think it is, as I think our illustrious president has said, uh, you know, our greatest failure. And, and the crisis of this generation. Uh, back to, I suppose, that interest rate point. He saw Pierce Doherty in that clip saying people can't wait till October, um, where maybe or maybe not, we don't really know something will be done uh, on these mortgage interest rates and giving people some relief. What do you say to that, Emer? Well, I suppose the first thing to remember is, uh, and to look at is, why is this interest, um, interest rate <coughs> change happening from the ECB? And it's happening because it's the strategy to curtail inflation. And that's all about bringing down the cost of living. And we know that's affecting households. It absolutely is. Uh, what we need to do now is make sure that in the short term that this doesn't have a negative impact on, on households. And we what know... is the short term? Is that October? Is it that it the is. Budgets? It's in the next couple of months. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're waiting at this stage now for, I know Bank of Ireland has reacted. We're waiting at this stage for, for banks to react to this. We, ha we have 
in place already a huge amount of supports in terms of cost of living. What we need to make sure now is that the next budget yeah. delivers for people. Okay, and that's yeah. exactly what we will do. Because Rose, what they will deliver, yeah. they will look after people, see, but it will be in the next you budget. You see, Kira, and I think it goes back to the earlier thing, even of the polls. You, you will know, Emer, that even before we came out here this evening, we all, all of us as the Roxas members, had an email from uh, somebody who described himself as a Fine Gael supporter all his life. He described having to pay 500 more a month for his mortgage. 250 more for his electricity and 100 more for something else. A thousand euro a month he had to find extra. And he said, I am at breaking point. My family are at breaking point. And that is what's reflected. And that's why we needed the mortgage interest relief. And that's okay. why and I cannot understand why the government is saying wait and see. All right. And support so needs crazy. to come to that man and to come to families like but them. It's not, for, no, it, is, it is. And firstly, as well, what we also need, and the minister okay. is working with the banks and the central banks in this, we need, we need clear and transparent information for consumers who we want to action. be able to change right, their mortgages. I want to go to another story that dominated, particularly in the UK today, former British. Prime Minister Boris Johnson committed repeated contempts of Parliament with his party gate denials. That was a cross-party investigation. Uh, we're joined live from the UK by news correspondent John Bevere. John, you're very welcome to the programme. What an incredible day. There seems to be though two camps, isn't there? One that believes the truth has finally caught up with Boris Johnson and another that thinks that this report, this committee was vindictive that they've gone too far, that they had made their decisions and their findings long before they investigated it. There's certainly a split now in the Conservative camp. I'm just wondering how big and how deep that split is. Yeah, that is the huge issue facing the Conservative Party, isn't it? Because you have this very clear report. It was something like 108 pages long, around 30,000 words. And it was damning in what it had to say. And as you pointed out there, it was a committee of cross-party MPs. This wasn't a report that was put together, say, by the opposition Labour Party. This was a mix of MPs from different parties. So the theory was they would evaluate the evidence fairly. And certainly what they found is that Boris Johnson, as you say, knowingly misled Parliament on repeated occasions. So they are in no doubt that Boris Johnson lied to Parliament. Uh, they are in no doubt that they wanted to impose a very hefty sentence on him. 90 days suspension is what they would have said. But of course, Boris Johnson left before any of that could happen. His critics say he jumped before he was pushed. And like you say, the huge issue now facing the ruling Conservative Party is that you have these two camps. You have the uh, Boris supporters who say that this committee has simply gone too far. Uh, this report has gone too far. You forced out a democratically elected member of parliament. No matter what you think about him, of course, uh, he was voted in by the people in his local constituency. But then, of course, you have the other people and you have members of the public, even those who have lost loved ones during the COVID pandemic, who say you cannot support a politician and especially not someone who used to be the prime minister who broke the rules so flagrantly during the lockdowns. Rules that the Conservative Party themselves, when uh, as the government, rules that they introduced themselves to try and keep the country safe, to try and stop the spread of COVID. Of course, this all to do with the Partygate scandal, the social gatherings that took place in Downing Street. Boris Johnson had previously admitted that he'd misled Parliament, had always said he didn't do that 
that deliberately. Well, this report today has very much disagreed with that and said he absolutely did uh, mislead Parliament deliberately and repeatedly at times as well. Um, there's going to be an opportunity to vote on this report on Monday, I think it is, John. What way is Rishi Sunak going to play it and how do you think he will vote? Well, Downing Street are very much trying to avoid the publicity when it comes to this because it just highlights divisions within the Conservative Party, as we've been talking about. At the moment, what they're saying is that Rishi Sunak hadn't had the time to go through this full report, wasn't going to be, uh, wasn't going to be commenting on it yet, uh, would very much have to um, see what he thought of the report itself before he decided which way he was going to vote. If, of course, he even turns up at all, they might might decide to take the easy way out and just not show up. Um, but of course, that will have its critics as well. But this is a real problem for the Conservative Party. They currently have two by-elections that they're going to need to fight. This is Boris Johnson and a supporter of his who both quit as MPs. We're expecting a third MP, Nadine Doris, to quit as well. When she does, that will trigger a third by-election. So we have the Conservatives having to uh, very much try and fight for their political lives because, of course, we're not far off as well from a general election here in the UK. So the Conservatives very much are going to need to draw a line under this and very much try and focus on what they think they're doing well. And interesting to hear you and your panel talk about polls because the Conservative Party are significantly behind and none of this is helping them. No, I can't imagine it is. Uh, John Bevere, thank you for that update. Um, John, it was, it was an incredible report. I think everybody thought there would be fightings against Boris Johnson, but perhaps not, that he had done things like um, abused his position and tried to you know, coordinate a campaign of intimidation against the committee members. The, the language was quite incredible. But still, I saw Jacob Rees-Mogg on Channel 4 News this evening saying, this has reinvigorated Boris's fortunes. There's a comeback coming. Well, I think we all know J Jacob Rees-Mogg is, 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 is spoofer-in-chief. Um, I think this is... I, I, it was a shocking report, and I read as much as I could. Um, but I think it's a triumph for democracy that um, when... That, that, that this has happened. In, in recent years, we've pe people like Boris Johnson and, um, and, um, and, Boris Tr and Donald Trump who are pushed to us as anti-politicians. They're, they're not politicians, they're real people, but they're post-truth populists. And they've attempted to take power. Mm. And all those flaws that were pointed out by jo uh, about Boris Johnson by his previous employers, esteemed historian Max Hastings, for instance, warned categorically about ever putting this man in a position of power. Uh, I think John Major and William Hague were also very, very doubtful of, it, uh, of, of his abilities. And it has all come to pass. But we've seen in the United States that the judicial system and the political system has pursued Donald Trump despite fears of, of reaction from his, mm -hmm. um, his supporters. And it's happening in Britain as well. And democracy and proper sober yeah. politics will always come up against populism in, coming, uh, in the coming times. And I think they will defeat, de defeat it. And we have a populist surge in this country, Sinn Féin are self-proclaimed um, populists and we'll, we, we'll have to face that. I don't think they're in the league, oh, of course, of Boris Johnson and I was Donald going to, Trump. I was, yeah, I was, yeah. I was going yeah. to cut in there for you, Rose, <laughs> but, but yeah. I think you probably want to do that yourself. Yeah. has has said yeah. in interviews yeah. that they are a populist party. Right. And we, 
are, are, the structures of our, of our democracy are, are, are important. And in Britain today, they were reinforced yeah. that these spoofers and, and charlatans can be faced. Okay, down. I will let Rose just well, respond well, to that. Well, are you a populist party? You are you following in the same vein well, here? Well, if you want to look at populist, you just have to look at what the two Fine Gael TDs in terms of kite flying in the budget uh, is and what that means. I think that can put... But really, Boris Johnson has been an absolute disaster from start to finish. Not only a disaster for Britain, but in terms of Ireland. He has unilaterally tried to undermine an international legally binding agreement. He has bought austerity in the North. And I would say good riddance to him. He He's also placated the DUP, yeah. which has led in no small part to the institutions being down in the north. But who, so the implications of his behaviour are really serious. I suppose, folks, who says good riddance to him? I mean, he's got a huge profile, doesn't he? So how do you get rid of somebody like look, that? Look at what you've put in the, as look, the backdrop here. Look, there he is, here. right, Mr. Looming he's over here us looking like at us. Looming over us like some ogre. <laughs> um, look at, there was a study in The Lancet some months ago, the medical journal, which said that the number of excess deaths from COVID in the UK was 10 times the number in Ireland. The reason for that was Boris Johnson's disgraceful carry-on at the start of the pandemic. He gets great credit now for uh, rolling out the vaccine. He killed 45 to 50,000 people through neglect in the well, first six months of the of the pandemic. Okay, which he would obviously completely deny and say there might be mistakes made at the beginning everything. of the pandemic. He denies but everything. They had huge and we talk, and we talk about factions and we talk about people coming to his defence. The only people I've seen coming to his defence on television tonight are people to whom he has given peerages and knighthoods and other idiosyncratic nonsense. I'm I'm hoping that he gets flushed down the toilet of history. I'm hoping he does. Um, I'm half hoping if I'm being honest with you, that he stays around long enough to break up the Tory party, because I know that that's what he would like to do. He will now destroy You feel that he's going to bring the, the Conservative well, party down I mean, down the Tory party stopped being a party some time ago. It's now a party right. of factions. There's a Brexit faction, a quasi-quartang faction. OK, we have to wrap it up Boris there, just Emma, you wanted to add something? Just, just for my tuppence worth, I suppose, between Boris Johnson and Trump, we can see what happens when populist politicians get into power. I think that's the message for us. Oh, OK, look, we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to Emer, to Rose and Fergus. John is going to be staying with me as we discuss some of the major stories that have got people talking over the past week that you at home might have missed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Very welcome back. 
now from Trump's tumultuous week to a tire deflating debacle. We're rounding up the biggest stories from the past week. John Lee has stayed with me and joining him is Sligo-based journalist Claire Ronan and Managing Director of the Communications Clinic, Owen Tomas McDermott. You are all very welcome to the programme. Owen, I will start with you because there has been, I think it's three pretty high-profile tragic cases, um, incidents involving knives in Dublin and I think in Cork um, throughout the last, I think, 48 hours. Three incidents. And I think when people hear that, there's often this perception that knife culture is on the increase. Mm. Is that the case? Do the stats back that up? Yeah, well, knife crime is what criminologists would refer to as a signal crime. So it's one of those things that when there are a spate of them, it signals to the to the public that something's wrong, even if the statistics don't really suggest it. So we've seen that there has been a number of knife crimes this week. If you do look at the statistics, though, in the last seven years, 13,000 knives have been seized by Angarda Shikana. So it works out at in and around 2,000 a year. So last year, for example, in 2022, 2,000 or so knives were seized by Angarthia So who's carrying them? Mostly it's young men. Why are they carrying them? Well, the debate is there, but often it's thought they're carrying them because they feel that they need to carry them. So then the question is, how do we stop them from carrying them? Jim O'Callaghan, for example, from Fianna Fáil, has been suggesting that we increase the punishment. It's currently at five years for carrying a knife with the purpose of uh, injuring somebody. So five years is what is currently there. Jim is suggesting that it's longer. There has to be thought to be, though, multiple different ways of doing it. Knife crime is a problem that hasn't been easy to solve anywhere. He so, also spoke today, I heard him speaking on radio, he also spoke about perhaps the need for a knife amnesty. Yeah, but knife amnesty, again, is, a, is one of those initiatives that, yes, makes sense because it gives people an opportunity to give back a knife legally. The problem is knives are easy to get. They're at home, for example, particularly for stabbing purposes. They look at other ones like slashing, for example, standing knives. You can get your hands on the standing knife pretty easily. So Scotland took an interesting analysis of it, that they moved it from being a policing issue to a public health issue, which is an interesting shift. And they also then began to look at it that if we're trying to deal with young men, it's best rather than punishing them to avoid them committing the crime in the first place. So things like youth clubs, community centres, football clubs, those types of initiative schools where we start educating, they had massive success early on. But with rather the, than the, this sort of extending the sentencing for carrying a knife that Precisely. didn't have the deterrent effect. Yeah, what they have found though in Scotland that the numbers have started ticking up, which I think the insight that we can gain from that is that it is a problem that needs to be watched and minded uh, and there is no one quick fix that there's multiple approaches to it. Okay, uh, Claire, I just want to move on to another awful, awful story in Sligo um, this week, the death of a young woman, she was hit by a train. Um, there was a tribute written by her niece online today and it was absolutely heartbreaking and very traumatic to read. Yes, um, her, it's Jessica McLaughlin, a very popular woman from Sligo Town, a mother of four children, a lovely, smiling person. I, I was just on nodding acquaintance with her, but uh, she was very popular and a kind soul. Her niece, Rebecca, who's still in Sligo University Hospital, wrote a very moving tribute today, spoke about how they wrapped each other in their arms and what they said to each other in the final moments and that she was broken-hearted and that she would never forget her and that she would continue to keep an eye on her children. Um, when the accident happened yesterday, um, there were a number of people on the train um, and it, the train, it, the, it's a tragedy in so many ways, Kira. Mm. The train driver was in terrible shock at the scene. He has to be remembered. But what's very important to remember is that very quickly on the scene were the fire brigade who had to use specialist equipment to lift a fence, had to get over fields to get in. 
And they worked in 25 degrees heat. You know what they wear, you know the hats they wear, you know all the equipment and all the physical work they had to do. And this morning, first thing, they were standing on a picket line in Sligo. And the mood Many of them, the I'm town, sure, traumatised by what they would have and seen And they yesterday. worked for 14 hours yesterday in extreme heat with no concern about their own safety. Now, I spoke to the mayor of Sligo this morning who joined them on the picket line and he said the support in the town was incredible. But there's a palpable sense of anger in Sligo about the fire, uh, uh, this strike. And people are very, very concerned because it has come to the fore now with how they worked yesterday. All right, and something hopefully we will uh, take mm. a look at on this programme in the next uh, couple of weeks. I just want to move on to another um, story which a lot of people might have seen today on Twitter and it was a picture that was tweeted by Minister Neil Richmond. This was off the back of... Um, tyres that had been deflated in his constituency by tyre extinguishers, John, which is a group of climate activists who um, posted, I think, a letter you can see there um, to, I suppose, justify their deflating of these tyres because the cars were SUVs. What did you make I, of it? I think it was, and correct me if I'm wrong, was, was the initial allegation that they'd slash tyres, but that's not the case. I think there is a big difference between slashing tyres and deflating tyres because you can pump them up again, whereas it would be damaging your property if they had, um, if they had done that. Um, this would have just... You, you were asking us off air. people. You were asking us off air and feel free to do it if, um, if you want on air, whether we drive SUVs or not. Um, we have one to, to accommodate a couple of kids. I have one myself. Um, and it, my wish and my dream is that we don't have um, cars, but in the part of semi-rural Dublin that I live in, there, there isn't adequate public, public transport to get around. Um, targeting SUVs seems a bit, a bit odd because an awful lot of them these, these days are electric. So, yes, but environmental issues... Um, in Ireland are far greater than the use of SUVs in, in South County Dublin as well. Hey, if that's what they want to do, but I just don't think it's, it's, it's going to have any impact on um, saving the environment rather than inconvenience people who may well have been bringing children to school or trying to get to work and couldn't do that. All right, but well, let's go to journalist Lauren Boland, author of the journal Dottie's Climate Newsletter on this. Uh, Neil Richmond described this as an act of thuggery and he said there should be no ifs, no buts, no whataboutery. This has to be completely condemned. Would you agree? Well... I think it's interesting when you think about protests like these because they always certainly start a discussion and I think that's probably what they're intended to do. We kind of get lost maybe in a little bit of thinking, oh, is this going to attract people to climate activism or is it going to alienate them from it? When actually probably the reason that a lot of these protests happen is not necessarily to draw people into the cause or at least immediately or to think that these people who have had their tyres deflated are suddenly going to decide to give up their SUVs. I don't think there's a any expectation of that happening after after one single event like this, but that really the aim is probably to start a discussion and bring people's attention to it. And certainly they've done that. Um, look, you know, in terms of the moral rights or wrongs of the actions, that's not, you know, that's not for me to decide. Um, I, you know, I think... Do you agree, I suppose, with Neil Richmond that, you know, 
private property had to be trespassed here. These were uh, people's, you know, private cars. They were vandalized. They were attacked. You know, people might have felt, um, you know, threatened or a bit um, concerned about their own safety when they came out this morning and found this note on their car and their car deflated and massively inconvenienced when nobody has any idea why they have chosen to drive an SUV. It's certainly the element of, I think, targeting people at home. It, it is quite difficult to stomach. I think you look at protests maybe that are happening in the UK that also caused similar um, similar heated debate with Just Stop Oil, where they're stopping traffic, spurring attention to the, the you know traffic in the middle of the street. That's, I suppose, maybe slightly different to that element, as you say, of, of going kind of outside people's homes at night. There is an unsettling element of that, certainly for people at home. Um, that being said, I think th those protests in the UK also drew similar ire. Um, so I think there is an element that there's always going to be pushback to these climate protests. And certainly we see that again and again when they happen. Um, so you wonder, I suppose, what kind of protests could happen that people would necessarily find acceptable? Is it a march through Dublin or, or, or is that still kind of too far for people? Um, and, and I think it's interesting, not just in a climate context, but just more broadly in terms of you know how we how we treat protests and, and you know people's right kind of freedom of speech and expression, but also balancing that with you know the right for people to feel safe in their homes. All right, let me just go to my panel here, uh, Claire. Um, what Lauren is saying there is, look, all right, we might be a bit unsettled and uncomfortable with people's private vehicles, you know, um, being deflated in this way, but. There is a very, very serious issue here. People always take offence at these type of protests, but it's a means to an end, and it is allowing us and facilitating this conversation. It's a catalyst for this conversation on SUVs, climate targets, carbon emissions, etc. Uh, I don't agree with any of that. Um, it may be opening this conversation, but we would be having this conversation anyway. Well, would we? I think so, yeah. I, I've heard many conversations about, you know, climate change and we all know that we have to reach the targets and everything. I don't think there's anything positive in taking the, the air out of someone's tyres. One of those people um, who was one of the constituents, his wife was expecting a baby and she went out with two other children and the tyres were flat. What if she was in labour? What if somebody had an emergency? This is not conducive to positive action in any way whatsoever. Those people would be much better off if they did something positive. May I jump in that? Because I totally agree with Claire. I think when you look at any public persuasion campaign, what you're looking for is two things. You're looking for awareness and you're looking for action. Oh. In relation to climate change, we don't need any more awareness. We are all but familiar with... But it's not working. With... Four out of five cars sold in Ireland last year were SUVs. And the stats would say they emit 25% more emissions than your average totally medium-sized car. Totally so accept the message that might be out there. There's plenty of awareness, you say, but the message is not getting well, through. People aren't changing their behaviour. That's when you need to get to, to action, for example. And letting out the air out of people's cars in Churchtown isn't going to help influence their behaviour. Annoying people doesn't influence them. And when you look at how, what are the types of actions, well, first of all, there has to be a sense of, well, uh, the action in and of itself is easy. So if we take John's example of living out in North County Dublin, appropriate levels of public transport would be helpful. A public transport system that one can trust. You'd also look but at electrical... What specifically saying is this, this type of car. You can still drive a car, but why choose this type of car that has a much higher emissions rate than an ordinary medium-sized car? Because you have a big family. Not everybody who drives these cars. Well, the roads are in bits. You know, like the, 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 we had this discussion on your programme a few weeks ago when it came to farming. And 
the problem with the environmental discussion is it isn't holistic. So they, they're targeting small groups utter, with utter pointlessness. Oh. It's just pointless. Yeah, okay, if you have something that generates a discussion about SUVs, um, has that any impact? No, it hasn't. We have, we have, we have the Green Party clamping down on the national herd in Ireland with, with, with actually contradictory effects because if you reduce the national herd here, the same amount of meat and dairy products are required worldwide and those products will be produced in Brazil or Argentina. So would you, would you disagree with any of these type of climate protests that you know, really inconvenience people? You could talk about the stop oil protests in the UK where they have set up barricades on motorways or they've thrown oil on paintings in the National Gallery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You, you don't agree with any of but these? It's, but it's futile. It's, they've, they've, never, they've never had an effect. You know, and is it is it beyond naive to think you stopping um, uh, traffic on a motorway is going to deal with the oil issue, which has has afflicted this planet for 150 years since we stopped using whale oil in, I in, I in the mid 19th century? So I, I just think it's futile, and then an inconveniencing ordinary hardworking people is not how you go about it. And also, if you're going around the dead of night, it's the equivalent to my eyes of that kind of behaviour on social media where you're anonymised what you're doing. All right, look, we're going to leave that there, but I think we will return to that subject at another point. Now, after the break, we continue our weekly news roundup with the bike rack scandal that got Twitter talking. Very welcome back, John, Claire, and Owen have stayed with me, and now we're joined by the manager of the Street 66 Bar on Parliament Street in Dublin to chat about how the installation of a bike rack outside her establishment dominated Twitter and resulted in a petition with over six thousand signatures. Uh, Siobhan, come you're very welcome to the program. So this is a space outside of your bar that I suppose you were looking for a license to use, that's been refused. That happened last Friday, and on Monday, this bike rack went in. Exactly, yeah, that's what happened. Why do you need this space, Siobhan, more than Dublin City Council? So basically, um, we opened the bar in 2021 after a year and a half, and I was delighted that um, on, the only reason I would have been allowed open was it was outdoor dining at the time. So with the help of Dublin City Council, um, we got to open the bar in June of 2021. So in the meantime, then every year we've, um, an application has been sent in to us to renew our license. And I did so as usual in October. So in March, um, after two and Freud sending in different um, um, maps and stuff, um, I got um, an email from the council to say that my application had been accepted. And then in um, June, then when the weather started getting really good, I was like, okay, the eight weeks are up now when I'm due to get my response. And um, I kept ringing every week. And on Thursday, there was no answer. I rang on Friday. Um, there was no answer. And um, then I rang on Friday afternoon and I was talking to one of the gentlemen in the council and he said that unfortunately my application had been refused. I received an email at 5.44 on 
um, Friday evening to say that the application for the furniture license was refused and um, there was no explanation or whatever. And, and then one of my morning, customers... You saw this Monday bike rack. So would you have used, would your customers have used this space then? So my customers would have used the space, correct. Um, so it has been used since um, 2021. So how big a loss then of, is this space to you and your business and your customers? So basically, um, we have a lot of customers who are um, older and they're still kind of getting the courage to come back into the bars and stuff. So they prefer to um, sit outside. Like I'm only recently after seeing some of my customers after two years. So it's, um, it's very important in my business. I suppose maybe Dublin City Council, who I know have agreed to meet with you and are going to speak to you about this, would say, look, we appreciate you want to use it for your business, but we are under pressure to create bike racks throughout the city. And there's actually not that much space that would be suitable in Dublin city centre. So we can't simply just give it over to a business just because you know it would be helpful or pleasant for your customers. That's the compromise and the decision that they have to make. Well, basically, there's 26 bike racks on Parliament Street and um, they're um, positioned um, really well. They're cemented into the concrete and whatever. And the one that's left outside the loading bay um, is, is temporary. It's, um, it's kind of a little bit treacherous for um, emergency exits and stuff because um, it, if the place is dark in the middle of the, in, at night time, people are going to definitely trip over them. Okay. Um, I didn't, don't see the necessity of having 10 extra bike racks on the street when most of them are um, unused. All right, let me just put this to the panel. Owen, what do you think of the handling of this? Well, I have obviously huge sympathy for Siobhan and uh, what they have experienced, you know, having asked for outdoor furniture and, and a license for that and what you get is a, a bike rack in return. It's been a bad couple of weeks, if not a bad couple of months for Dublin City Council. We had a piece, for example, by Una Mullally earlier this week, really saying that Dublin has become a dirty, unloved city. For anybody who works or lives in Dublin, you have come to the conclusion, I'm sure already before reading Una's piece, that it's a dirty and unloved city. And the question really is, well, who is Dublin City Council creating this city for? Is it for citizens that should enjoy living there or is it for tourists? And sometimes you get a sense that it's for tourists. But, but perhaps even the you can bike imagine, rack will make well, even less if you can, cars in the city and make this dirty old city Well, a bit I don't nicer. know about that. Like, I don't even know what's there for tourists anymore. It's not a particularly welcoming city. And I think when you look at it, well, what's the solution? One thing that I, I certainly think might be useful is a directly elected mayor, where at least you have the accountability to say, well, it is you whose head is on the line and you must be delivered. We're currently... Currently, we have a kind of an anonymous executive and also we have a group of city councillors. Not many of us know who they are. Yeah, all right. I just want to move on to one final uh, story that we will be talking about, I think, for the next God only knows how many years. And that is Donald Trump. 37 federal charges against him on this occasion. What could he do if he was convicted, do you think? I know I'm jumping ahead here, but uh, any of the reports that I've read into this seem to think that there is some merit uh, to these charges. Well, if he is convicted and ends up in prison, he could still run. Mm -hmm. And in 1920, Eugene Debs, now a different type of politician, but a socialist, did exactly that and got a million votes. Ran from jail. From jail. What do you think is going to happen here, John Lee? Uh, I heard uh, uh, James Comey, the um, controversial, I guess, uh, former head of the FBI, being interviewed this morning by Emily Mathis, and he said it's highly likely that he'll be conv convicted, in his view. Mm. 
um, and that he could absolutely, under the law, run for pre the presidency in jail. It might affect his um, his turnouts at his rallies if he's got to shout out the bars of a, of a cell. Um, he, Comey also described the kind of um, um, prison he'd be in, which is something like a dormitory and is free, free to move around. But yeah, he could stand for election and he could win. OK, I'm just conscious we haven't seen the defence case yet, have we, Owen? Well, no, we haven't. Although when you look at what Donald Trump has been saying in defence, some of it actually reads like an admission um, that, you know, in terms of actually he has acknowledged that he has been in possession of these. So it certainly does throw up some questions. Based on what John's talked about, that would throw up a huge constitutional challenge. Well, I think it's probably most worrying. If you look at what he did when he lost the election, he created a riot. What will he do if he ends up in prison? All right, something we will be returning to time and time again. That's it from us. My thanks to John, Claire, Owen and Siobhan Comey. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. But from the team here, take care. Good night. <laughs>